Well, it's good to be with you. Um, I, I have to say, I was uh, while we were just worshiping there, I, it's an absolute privilege to preach. I love preaching the Word of God. I became a Christian when I was 17 and a half. I started studying the Bible, and I can remember the first time I realized, just within the first few days, some amazing truth. I remember running downstairs to find somebody and say, did you know the Bible says this? This is amazing. Have you read this? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we knew that. Absolutely. Um, But it's great to be excited, I think, about the scriptures, isn't it? And the truth that's in there. And the reality is also, sometimes when we've been on the road with the Lord for uh, some of us maybe decades, it's easy for it to just become sort of so normal, we forget the impact and power of it. Now, what I would say is, if you ever read the letter of James, you you can't really get out of the room unscathed. James, I I try and imagine what James is like in my head. Whenever I read the letter of James, I feel like somebody's just uh, smacked me in the face with a wet fish. Uh, James, and and I think Ian had a tough passage last week. Some of the the parts of James are really tough. It's like he's grabbed you by the scruff of the neck and given you a real good talking to. So some of it's quite direct, not always that easy. Uh, It's very, very powerful stuff. uh, And the truth of Scripture is always, always designed to build us up, to encourage us, to bring us to a place of repentance and renewal as well. So this morning I want us to have a look at James chapter 5 verse 7 to 12. Um, I've, I've, I've called this Waiting for God. I really struggle with the title this week and that will be, perhaps become apparent. Um, some of you might know that there's a, a very famous play called Waiting for Godot uh, by Samuel Beckett. I remember watching it. Um, I think my wife and I went to, I can't remember what the, there's a theatre in the round in the centre of Manchester at the Royal Exchange, we went to watch it. I have never been so bored in all my life. Uh, and it was only afterwards that somebody told me, well, you know what the play's about, don't you? I said, no, because basically it's two tramps stood around the tree waiting for their mate called Godot to turn up. And uh, somebody told me later that this is a play that Beckett wrote about the pointlessness of waiting for God to turn up. That's what it's about. So in, in a sense, it's quite an anti-Christian uh, a play, and um, it, I guess it sort of highlights from his point of view, you know, the futility. Why, why, you know, why are these Christians putting their hope in God? What's the point? What are you waiting for? Well, we're going to have a look at that uh, this morning and have a little bit of a think about exactly what we are waiting for. And uh, I guess the first thing to just ask you is, uh, how good are you at waiting? Now, I, I don't know if you're waiting for anything at the minute. Um, you know, waiting for exam results, you could be waiting for hospital to, just what I find waiting at traffic lights just about my limit, uh, and Trish is always telling me I need to learn uh, to become a bit more patient. Uh, and so that word patient, if you read the passage we're going to look at now, uh, a lot of translations will use the word patience. I have, to t- I have to say, that's not great, we'll dig into it a bit more. Uh, you won't find the word patience in the translation uh, we're using this morning. Can I just ask, guys, is there a way of the slides coming up on this screen so I can just see what's, what's what? So uh, let's just have a look now at uh, James 5. Uh, so he says, Endure suffering then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, enduring 
until the autumn and spring rains. You too endure and strengthen your hearts because the Lord is uh, the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. Look, the judge is standing at the doors. Brothers and sisters, as an example of endurance in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who've persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and you've seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. So there's some tricky stuff in there. Uh, some stuff at first reading, we might even wonder, what, why is that there? Why is he so strong on this? I don't quite get it. So we're going to have a, a bit of a deeper look. So I've asked you already that question, how good are you at waiting? But there's probably a, a, a deeper question than that. And I'm not getting a movement here. There we Oops. When you're waiting for a bus, two come along at once, don't they? There we go. So my, my second question really is, I've asked you how good are you at waiting? The more relevant question for the passage that James has got for us today is how good are you at suffering? Anybody good at suffering? One, one or two. I'm getting for, anybody have plenty of practice? Yay, there we go. So even though we've had lots of practice, maybe we're not uh, that good at it. There are, of course, lots of different kinds of suffering. There's pain, ill health, disability, disappointment. Now, as I'm reading these, I'm really trying to think this morning, what might be the sorts of things that are going on for us? Failure, financial problems, anxiety or depression, rejection, loneliness, injury, the torment of broken relationships, loss or bereavement, assault or trauma, bullying, poverty, persecution, pressure without relief, or being trapped in damaging relationships. There's all sorts of possibilities as to the sorts of things that we might find ourselves suffering and struggling with in our lives. This morning I want us to have a dig into this passage and we're going to look at uh, three particular areas and I've sort of drawn a little diagram of this. So we're going to look at um, two types of suffering, uh, two types of future, and then two types of speaking. Uh, there's actually a lot more speaking goes on in James, and um, I'm not sure whether it's Ian preaching next week on the next passage or not, but there's a lot more about speaking in that one. But we're going to focus on uh, these particular ones just for the moment. So let's start off just by having a bit of a think about two types of suffering. Um, I've got a picture here. Does anybody know who this is? Who's that? Never seen her before. Thanks for that. Great. Okay. Anybody know? You, this is not a context, by the way, that you might, she might be familiar to you. She's not a singer. Paula Radcliffe. Absolutely. So it's Paula Radcliffe. And... Um, Actually, she looks pretty good there. She's got a nice dress on. She's got her hair done and makeup. Um, 
Ladies, I don't know how long it takes you, how much work it takes you uh, in a morning to, to sort of look like that. I don't know, I don't know whether an hour would be. Um, I'm not going to comment on our, what happens in our home. Um, I'm still sitting in the car waiting, but we won't go there. Um, so that's, that, that's Paula Radcliffe on a good day. Uh, that, on the other hand, okay, is a different photo. And actually, if you looked, if you looked at her career, that's more likely to be what she looked like. Now imagine, who would choose, who would choose to look like that? Uh, I mean, and yet, that's what her career was all about, was about the long distance running. And this morning, as we think about two types of suffering, we're thinking about a type of waiting, because that's what Paul's talking, well, this is what James is talking about here, different types of waiting. Now, Paula Radcliffe, you know, she might have taken an hour to look like she did in the other one, in the other one but she's, she's taken decades to look like this. She has trained herself, trained herself to be able to endure the pain and suffering of marathon running. Has anybody here run a marathon? Give us a wave if you have. Yeah, never again am I hearing. Yeah, yeah a, real, a real tough thing. I've got a lot of admiration for anybody that has, that has done that. Absolutely amazing. So the first thing to say here is, when we read a translation of this passage and it talks about patience... That really is not an adequate description as to what James is writing about. Because he's writing more about this. A type of long-suffering or endurance. Now, some of the older Bible translations will have used the word long-suffering. And there are other ways of translating it. So uh, just for the sake of the passage here, uh, I'm using this. The idea is more about endurance or enduring suffering or adversity over a long period. And that is more than simply tapping your fingers impatiently at the traffic lights when you're sitting there holding the steering wheel. It is way beyond that. It's more like what you see in Paula Radcliffe's uh, face here. Was that my phone? Is that somebody else's? That's okay, because it sounds really weird like it's coming from me. It's from over there somewhere. That's okay. I didn't mean to draw attention to you, but I really thought I had a phone on me for a moment. Yes, Lord. Okay, I will. I'll make sure I tell them. That's fine. Okay. Uh, so so if, you, if, if you look at that picture, that's, that's amazing. So the, the, the word that James uses, the word that James uses is, is macrothemia. And it's time plus adversity. Or time plus suffering. It isn't just about the moment. It's about it being stretched out over a long period. Now, if you went absolutely literally and took this word apart, it literally means long anger. Or holding onto intense internal emotion over a long period. It was interesting. I looked the NIV up this morning, and it actually translates the word as forbearance. Now, that's not really a word that we use very much. But it's this idea that I'm holding this and I am not going to sort of let it explode outward. I keep it, I hold it, and I'm patient and I run with it. Now Paul, of course, in Galatians 5, writes about the fruit of the Spirit. And let me remind you, when Paul writes about the fruit of the Spirit, he's not writing about fruit plural. So this isn't lots of fruits, it's one fruit. 
Um, and it's difficult to try and imagine it. In a way, I think of the fruit of the Spirit as a bit more like the idea of a diamond. You know, you turn it in the light and it's got all these facets. But Paul's first four words are these, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and long-suffering. Now, imagine putting love, joy, peace, and long-suffering together. But they're part of the same package of the human experience. And let me tell you this, if we didn't need the ability to suffer or endure over a long period, the Holy Spirit wouldn't have it as a fruit to then give us the ability to do. So sometimes we just think, you know, once we become Christians, you know, everything's fantastic, everything's wonderful, my life's going to cruise along with no problems. I'll be super healthy till the day I die, and da-da, that's it. But, you know, actually over a period of time, all of us find that we are not immune to the same experiences of those around us. In fact, sometimes we can go through even tougher stuff. And pressing on, enduring through that, is not an easy thing to do. Except for the reassurance that God is with us in it, and that he is giving us the strength for it. But the reality is, living like this, living through tough stuff over a long period, saps your strength. James writes in verse 8, he says, endure and strengthen your hearts. It's interesting when you think about how tired suffering or adversity can be. You know, we can be absolutely exhausted, physically wiped out by just trying to press on and keep going. You would expect in a way that that James would write here about something that was going to give us strength to our bodies, but instead he doesn't. He goes to the inner life, the inside. He goes to the heart. It's not your body that needs to go to the gym. It's your heart that needs to have a workout. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, a verse which, if you only speak the first half, sounds really quite grim. He says there, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that's been a a massively misquoted verse, because when when you just read that on on its own, it just sounds like the Christian life is just all about us, a life of works, trying to get salvation. But that's not what Paul's writing about at all. And you need to listen to the second half of that verse. So he says, work out your salvation. Why? Because, and this is the powerful bit, because it is God who works in you to move and to act according to his goodwill. Right? So this is the starting point. The starting point isn't our good works working it out. The starting point is the fact that God is in you working. And your job is to take whatever God is working in you and to work it out. It's it's opening the doors and letting the work of God outwards into your life as a sort of over. Does that make sense? So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And the encouraging part is because God's at work in you. And God's work in you is always, Paul says, to will and to act according to his good purpose. God has a purpose and plan for our lives. And and even when we doubt that amidst the tough, adverse and suffering, the plan and purpose of God has never gone away. And, And so the Lord says, work it out. So when he says here, endure and strengthen your hearts, he's literally going to to the, the very spiritual center of who we are. 
the rootedness of God's plan and purpose in you, the fact that God dwells in you and is wanting you to work it out. Jesus, you know, in uh, John's gospel said, I can only do the things the Father gives me to do. I can only say and speak the words the Father gives to me to speak. That was Jesus working out what the Father was working in him. And of course, he sets us that ultimate example of enduring and of keeping going. The second type of suffering, besides this long-suffering, this endurance, is, is that of perseverance. And, and this word is, it, it means a type of standing. It's, it's like a posture. Um, I, I started work two days a week. Uh, my job sort of changed. I'm still doing three days as a chaplain uh, in, over in Dundee, and I'm doing two days a week lecturing at Glasgow University. So now part of my journey involves going on the underground, the tube, through uh, or underneath Glasgow. And it's a long time. I, I studied, uh, when I studied theology, I studied down in London, so I was used to going on the tube a lot. So it sort of brings back quite a lot of memories. Anyway, as I'm one, I was on one of the underground uh, trains this week, and it was absolutely jam-packed. You know, when you get on and there's just about enough space, and so you, there's no place to sit down. And some of these trains are very rickety, and they're, they're like all over the place like this. Well, I got on, uh, and I just stood with my two feet together like this, and I wasn't holding on to anything. And uh, as soon as the thing went, I just banged my head against the door. And uh, yeah, exactly, thanks for that. Um, Ministry of Empathy there. Um, so, so can, can, what do you think? Do you think, I, do you think I just still stood like this? Well, you hope not. No, I'm an idiot. I just carry on doing the same thing, banging my head. So I didn't. I changed my posture. I changed my stance. I braced. I moved my feet like this, one foot to the side, one foot forward, and I grabbed hold of something. Um, and and, and this, this word that James gives us here, Perseverance means, means to stand under a load. It is a sense of bracing yourself, a sense of posture. It's the sort of thing that you might see when you see one of these, the, 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 the weather forecasters, and, and they're in uh, New Orleans in the middle of a hurricane, you know, and you see the wind, and they're, they're, they're like this, bracing. It's the sort of thing that a rugby player does. You know, they're not falling over, they're bracing themselves against the opposition of what is coming. It is a stance in suffering. Now the thing is, you can do that on your own, you can persevere on your own, but there is also something of a corporate perseverance too. Paul writes uh, elsewhere, I think it's in Galatians, Galatians 6, he talks there uh, about the fact that we don't have to brace ourselves and persevere on our own. He says, bear one another's burdens. Now, just imagine, if you can for a minute, me, uh, somebody from the north, from Lancashire, going down to London. You're on the underground. It's packed, and it's wobbling all over the place. And my solution is to say to everybody, all right, lads, come on, let's have a group hug. All right, we're all just going to hold on to each other. It'll be absolutely fine. Now, do you think anybody from the southeast of England is going to respond to that positively? Okay, they probably call a community mental health nurse out and, and, 
Yeah, there's a really funny sketch, by the way, on Mock the Week, where they do a newsreader, uh, talks about a, a, a northerner in London who is, who is uh, causing all sorts of problems. The police are ringing, the people are ringing 999 because a northerner is saying hello to them on the street. It's, it's a brilliant sketch, well worth, well worth looking up. Uh, you'll find it on YouTube. Um, so there is something there. So, and, and the image probably... Of, of that one of bearing one another's burdens, of the posture of standing under together, is, is that of a rugby scrum. You just look at those guys and the, or the, the ladies playing rugby, they just lock themselves together and then they brace against that which comes against them. Yes, we can do it on our own, but it's far better to do it together. Bear one another's burdens, Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6. So, that, so there's these two types of things that James is, is calling us to. The ability to endure suffering over a long period and the ability to have a posture braced to persevere over a period of time. So in our waiting for God and in our standing for God, these are real things that are necessary as part of our relationship as disciples of Jesus. Now, they generally wouldn't be the two main selling points that we put on trying to convince people to become Christians, would they? Come and suffer. But let us remember that Jesus himself, when he was looking for disciples, called all of us to take up our cross and follow him. What he's saying is, folks, there is no guarantees that you'll make it through unscathed. But you'll get there. You'll get there into an amazing future in the end. And that's what I want to think about just next. Two types of future that James talks about in this passage. Now, the thing to emphasize here is that these, these two types of future both involve the return of Jesus. So that's the first thing to say is, he's coming back. Did you know that? He is coming back. Can I hear an amen? amen. And hallelujah. He is coming back. There's, um, I, I, I always squeeze movies into, into my talks. There's a, a, a movie made by Michael Mann called Last of the Mohicans. I don't know if anybody's seen it. Daniel Day-Lewis plays a um, half-English, half-Mohican uh, warrior. And there's this brilliant scene where he's rescued these uh, wealthy English ladies. And they're hiding them. Uh, away from some of the real nasty Native Americans who want, want to kill them. And he hides them behind a waterfall. And uh, then he yells, it's this, it's this cracking little scene. And he, as he's walking back through the waterfall and leaving there, he says, I will come for you. I will come for you. And whenever I see that clip, I always just think of Jesus. You know, as, as he's leaving the disciples... In, in Acts chapter 1, he's ascending to heaven, and he calls out to them in that sense, I will come for you. He has now not left us on our own. He is coming back. The return of the king is close. I squeezed another movie in there. So, so, so James says that all of this is about waiting 
enduring until the Lord's coming because the Lord's coming is near. Now, let let me just say something which is fairly obvious, but we might not have just clicked. James wrote this 2,000 years ago, and he was saying the Lord's nearly here. And I think if you went and spoke to James, he would think probably, hopefully, that within his lifetime, he would see the return of Jesus. He didn't. And 2,000 years on, we are still here and we are still enduring. So as we take this statement about the return of the king, about the promise that Jesus is coming back again, we may well take that with a sort of pinch of salt and say, yeah, but look how long. Will he really? What difference is that really going to make to me? Well, there is a significant difference. I'm going to tell you why. And that starts with reading the story backwards. Um, Tricia, my wife, I, I don't know if I told you I was going to use you as an illustration. Um, by the way, at the auction yesterday, Steve, brilliant, should be a stand-up comedian if you ever give up doing the work for the church, brilliant. I bid on something, and I wasn't stood next to my wife. Uh, but what I could see my wife, my wife's face was... <laughs> and, then, and then as the bid went higher, Trish was there going... Now, funnily enough, funnily enough, when I'm about 50 minutes into a sermon, Trish is sat there going like that. So I know that what that means is more, more. (laughs) Unfortunately, I didn't win the item. Uh, But Trish has a habit when she's reading a book of reading the end first. Now, does anybody else do that? Wow, that's amazing. Now, the reason when I spoke to Trish about this is she can't stand the tension of not knowing how it's going to pan out. So she reads the end first, and then she goes, ah, ah, that's all right. Now I can read the book and enjoy it, all right? The really annoying thing is she started doing it when we're watching movies. (laughs) Now, if we're at home, we're sat on the settee. We've got a big lazy boy settee. The recliners are back. Our feet are up. I'm watching this movie uh, we were watching Death on the Nile, um, Kenneth Branagh's version of Death on the Nile, the Agatha Christie movie. And I'm sat there going, I think I know who killed them. And Trish is sat there with a smug smile on her face. <laughs> and there she is, she's got her phone up, she's got the internet movie database up, she's looked at the whole plot, how's it pan out, who's the killer? She goes, no, it's not them. I'm like, don't ruin the movie for me, I don't want to know. So particularly with thrillers, Trish has to check out how the movie ends because you just can't stand the tension. She reads the story backwards. Now that's exactly what James wants us to do here as well. He wants us to read the movie backwards. So in verse 10, he starts speaking about the example of endurance in the face of suffering. Take the prophets, he says, as an example who spoke in the name of the Lord. He says, we count them as blessed. Now, his point is this. We we can look back and read stories about how God honored others who suffered and struggled, who persevered, and now we call those people blessed. He says, we get to read those stories. And he then moves on and he speaks about Job. 
Now, if you were to go to a book of the Bible about with, you know, a story about somebody suffering, the problem, the ultimate story would be the story of Job. He had a nightmare of a time. Go and have a read, see how uh, difficult it was. And James says, you've heard of Job's perseverance. And then he says this, and you have seen what the Lord finally brought about. Really interesting phrase there. You've seen what the Lord finally brought about. That literally is, it's the, it says in the Greek, it says the telos of the Lord, the end. So what the Lord finally brought about, it's just one word, the end. Okay, you have seen the, the, the end that the Lord brought about. You've seen the end. Now what he means there is, he says you've, you've seen the end of Job's story. You've seen it wrapped up. You've seen it completed. Now, interestingly, this is the same word that Jesus uses on the cross when he says, it is finished. And it's also the same word that Jesus used in Matthew Gospel when he says, be perfect, as my heavenly Father is perfect. Be completed. Be the finished article. Be the end result. And... He says here that you've, you've seen the end of Job's story. And what was the end of Job's story? The end of Job's story, he says, is this, that the Lord was full of compassion and mercy. Now, I'll tell you what, if I put another picture up, we saw earlier Paula Radcliffe glammed up. Then we saw her looking, forgive me, but pretty rough in the middle of a marathon. I'll tell you what, if you could see a photo of her at the end of the race after she won, she's got the British flag and she's got a medal hanging around her neck. She doesn't look like she does when she's suffering. There is something that happens. There's some transformation that takes place when we have endured to the end, when we get to the end of the story. It changes how we look back at everything that has come before. There is one coming of Jesus But there are two possibilities, two types of future that are open to human beings. One of those futures is a compassion and mercy. But the other future is condemnation and judgment. Now let's remember, interestingly enough, James is writing this to Christians. He's writing it to the church. And just like he does in the rest of James, he's got some pretty stern, stark warnings. Now the thing is, When James says, we've read the story of Job, we've we've read to the end, the Lord's full of compassion and mercy. What he's saying is, that can be your story too. The end of your story, the end of the story of your life can be, the Lord was full of compassion and mercy. I don't know about you, but those... That's the one I want written over my life. Anybody here want condemnation, judgment? No, I don't think so. Of course we don't. Of course we don't. But what James says is that there is a risk in our suffering. There's a risk that we will depart and go in a damaging direction. And so we have to be really careful. So we're going to speak about that in just a little moment. So our lives can diverge onto two different paths, depending on how we respond in the middle of all of this tough stuff. But the other thing that James says is, um, and, and he uses the imagery of a farmer. 
he essentially says that in our waiting, in our enduring, as we're waiting for the future to come, for Jesus to return, he says, we need to perceive the season. Uh, and he uses the image of autumn and spring rains and how a farmer who's planted a crop, you know, all of the rough, difficult weather, I mean, we've had a lot of rain recently. I mean, around Octorada, I don't know what it's like where you are, but there's so much rain that the the soil from the roads is being, from the fields is just being washed onto the roads. It's just incredible the amount of water. But he's saying essentially here is you don't just get a crop, a valuable crop, instantly. You have to wait through the seasons and see it grow, and it goes through some difficult weather. Now, it's a beautiful image, the image of a farmer, and it's one that we can grab hold of that says, of course we have to wait. Of course we have to endure and keep going. But it's also a beautiful image of new creation. Because God's plan and purpose isn't simply that as, as believers that we ultimately that we leave our physical bodies and our suffering behind and we go and float around as disembodied souls floating through the clouds in, in space somewhere. That's not. You know, the Bible talks about a new creation. That when Jesus comes back and after that judgment, God is going to renew the whole of creation. And that image of the land yielding its valuable crop really calls to mind the end of Revelation 21 and 22. And the trees there in, the, in the, that heavens, heavenly garden city in the new heaven and new earth, which never stop yielding their fruit, their valuable crop. So if there's an image that can help you, it's that of a farmer to keep going and to endure. Just very, very briefly, picking up that theme of a race over in 2 Timothy 4, the apostle Paul, nearing the end of his life, says this, he says, the time for my departure is near. I fought the fight, the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So he's there, he knows he's near the end, and that's the imagery he used. He says, the time of my departure is near. In other words, there he's talking about his death. But then he goes on and he says this. He speaks about Jesus as a righteous judge who will award me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. So there are two different days that Paul talks about. One day is the day of our departure, that's when we die, and the other day is the day of Jesus' return. And both of those bring release from enduring of suffering and adversity. The question is, which one will come first? Well, the Bible tells us there will be a generation that one day will not die because the Lord will return at that time. What an amazing, amazing thing. So just very quickly, finally, there are two types of speaking. Now, the thing to say here is that suffering affects how we speak. Um, I don't know what, I'm trying to get used to Scottish words and dialect. Now I work in Dundee. I, 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 I'm sorry, I've not got a clue what somebody's saying to me. It's, it's, it's weird. Um, in, in Lancashire, we talk about somebody being nauty. Now, is that a word that you would use? Do you know nauty? Okay, that's, that's if you're grumpy because you're uncomfortable or you're in pain. Okay, I've got a bit ratty, a bit nauty. Okay, so if you, there you go. 
Feels like being home again, doesn't it? Nauty. There we are. So whatever word there is, um, there is that the, the suffering affects how we speak. I don't know about how. I don't know how many of us are at our best when we're in pain, and especially when we've been in pain for a long time. You know, it's hard to be all. You know, I don't know if anybody else is like this. You know, you come into church and your back is absolutely killing you. You know. And a member of the welcome team comes, hello, so wonderful to see you, wrap your arms like. There are times when you feel just clear off, will you? Let me sit down. Okay. Let's be honest, we need to be honest. There are times when we're just grumpy, grumpy so-and-sos. You know, when it's not easy, when we, when we get annoyed by somebody else being all light and bright and breezy. We, we can be like that. And so there is a problem of what we say in our suffering. Now, if you read the whole of James' letter, James is obsessed with what we say. He's obsessed about the destructive power of the tongue, and so he returns to it now. And he talks about two things, one of which is obvious, and the other one, not so much. The first one is grumbling against. He talks about the fact that when we're suffering, we end up grumbling against one another. And he basically says, look, just stop it. Just stop grumbling against each other. So from a a completely pastoral approach this morning, if you're grumbling against somebody, stop it. All right? Don't do it. It's not right. It's wrong. You know it's wrong. Uh, so, So that's it. There we go. We've sorted everything. The church is now transformed because I told you that and you've gone away and you've done it and you're never going to grumble against anybody at all. The thing is here, it isn't just grumbling, it's grumbling at or grumbling against one another. All right, now the the obvious point is this, you grumble against them, so what happens? They grumble against you, but they don't do it to you, they go to somebody else and grumble against you. Then they go and tell somebody else and grumble about the both of you. So they grumble about the original person, then they grumble against the second person because they're telling them that they're grumbling about the first person. It has this sort of chain reaction effect. And before you know it, the church has been nuked by grumbling. And, and, put, and James is just saying, just, just stop it. It's, right, it's like a rugby scrum, which you're supposed to be bound together. Uh, and I, I don't know if anybody's watched the rugby over the recent weeks. There's been a couple of fights in some of the matches. But the fights are always between the opponents. They're not between each other. But imagine if that scrum fell apart and they're all hitting each other and doing this at each other. It would just be ridiculous. And yet, that's what the church can be like sometimes. Now, Jesus, let me be clear here, never sinned. But there was a point where he came close to being naughty. And that's in the story of the Garden of Gethsemane. And it tells us there that he's saying, Lord, if it's possible, let this... Let the cross just, please, is there another way? But not my will, but yours be done. And it says he he sweated uh, drops of blood. And then he goes back to the disciples. And what are the disciples doing? They're asleep. And at that point, he's a bit naughty. And I don't blame him for a bit naughty. Now, just to be clear, he didn't sin. But you can imagine just how he felt. I'm out here, I'm about to be crucified, I'm trying to keep going, and you lot have came here saying, yeah, we're behind you, you're all asleep. Oh, Jesus clearly could get frustrated. 
with his disciples. And sometimes I guess he could be frustrated with us. But he shows us mercy and grace, kindness and compassion. So he says, don't. Just don't grumble against each other. The other one, very, very briefly, which might not seem as relevant to us, is about swearing. Now, he doesn't mean swearing as in foul language. He means swearing by making an oath. Now, I had to dig around a bit here to make sense of this because today it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense as to why this would be important. He says here, don't swear by anything else because if you do, you're going to be condemned. You're like, whoa, hang on a minute. That's pretty strong. What the heck is that all about? Well, apparently back in that day, in the Old Testament certainly, oaths were a big thing. And so somebody, if there's a real big deal oath, somebody might swear by God. You know, I promise on God's name that I will, I will do this. Uh, but apparently what happened was there was a sort of cultural thing that people decided to go for lesser oaths. So you don't swear by God. You might buy, somebody might swear upon their wife's name. And essentially it was a bit, it was a bit like making a promise like this. Okay, if you do, you know, you know what that means? Yeah, 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 uh, yeah, I, yeah. Of course. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. De- no, no, no. De- I'll, I'll definitely do that. I won't be doing that. Okay. And so there was something like this going on. And so what he's saying is this. He's saying, James is like, stop it. Do not do that. I want the end of it. It's gone. None of this. Tier and hierarchy are making promises to each other. He says it's just like the grumbling against one another. The church will fall apart if our relationships are based on broken promises. So stop it. So we're getting towards the end here. James will, as we'll find out next time, carry on and speak about all sorts of other types of speaking, amazing types of speaking. The question is here, where do we sort of end with this in a sort of tough type of message where we want some hope and reassurance? Well, James has already told us to go and read the stories of the prophets. And one of the passages in the prophets, which I think lies right behind what James is writing, is found in Isaiah 40. And he picks up the theme of grumbling here. Isaiah uh, writes this. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My car- cause is disregarded by God. Says, so there's grumbling and complaining. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He's not going to grow tired or weary. His understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary, increases power of the weak, and even youths grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall, but those who hope or wait in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. As we wait on God, As we press our way up the mountain in adversity, we can have the hope from reading the story backwards that God's strength is with us, that God dwells in us. And if we agree to let him, we can work out, outward in our lives, the amazing wonders of God.
we will be living displays of Jesus himself. The one who endured suffering upon the cross. The one who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. And he calls us to follow in his footsteps too. Let's bow our heads and pray as the musicians come back. Thank you. Heavenly Father, we we just want to say to you that that life can be tough at times. There is, for some of us, uh, stuff that we're living with that seems like it's just we're, we're just stuck with it, like that's how it's going to be. For others, Lord, there are difficult situations, but we see maybe light at the end of the tunnel. We hope there is. And for others of us, Lord, life's going great at the minute, but we're also aware that life happens and stuff can be round the corner. But Lord, we don't want to take anything for granted. So in our weakness or in our strength, We want to be found standing in our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to rely, Lord, upon your power, your spirit, upon your presence, Lord, rather than anything of ourselves. Lord, come upon your church, banish grumbling, bring unity, help us to brace and stand together. And Lord, for those who are going through the greatest suffering and adversity right now, we pray that you'll help us to open our eyes and be filled with the same mercy and compassion that you're filled with. And Lord, we say we will stand with them. We will put our arms around them, embrace them. We will keep them standing in Christ because we are your body, the body of Jesus. We ask this for the glory of your name in the church. Amen.